This episode of The Explainer is supported by daft.ie. Are you buying or selling a home? If it's for sale, it's on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, what caused dozens of overdoses in Dublin recently? Now, last week saw a marked increase in the number of drug overdoses in the capital. Over 50 people overdosed on heroin in Dublin, according to the HSE. There were no reports of any deaths, but drug users were warned of a particularly potent batch of heroin circulating. The HSE later confirmed trace amounts of nitazine were found in a drug associated with one of the overdoses. Now, nitazine is a potent and dangerous synthetic opioid. It's cheaper and more potent than heroin, and it carries an increased risk of overdose hospitalisation and death. Today we're going to look a little closer at this subject and find out more about the synthetic opioids. Are they something new to those in addiction services? What dangers do they pose? And where does all of this fit into the concerns around fentanyl, another synthetic opioid causing untold damage in the US and the possibility of its arrival in Ireland? To do this today, we're joined by Dr. Austin O'Carroll, a GP in Dublin who specialises in addiction treatment and who's the founder of SafetyNet Ireland. Austin, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Laura. Pleasure to join you. So, Austin, can you tell us about what happened just over the past week, the scale of these overdoses? Was it unprecedented? And what's your experience been of it? Well, first of all, these overdoses are very common and people probably don't realise this. And I mean, we know fatal overdoses. There's roughly one fatal overdose a day. Uh, in Ireland, but non-fatal overdoses are, are more, much more common. So, you know, it's a daily experience to hear of or to experience a, a non-fatal overdose. I wouldn't say it's a daily experience to experience to see one person happen, but it wouldn't be uncommon. But what happened in this scenario was that uh, basically we had an overdose inside in the, the practice. Uh, my, my manager went into the toilet and found someone um, who was uh, on the ground unconscious and he happened to have naloxone. Well, he always carries naloxone in his pocket and he administered it immediately and called the doctor and nurse who came in immediately and started reviving the patient. They called the ambulance. And the first thing, it's not necessarily unusual to have to give two naloxone, but it's not usual either. So that's the first thing. And the second thing they did was that they contacted, uh, when the ambulance arrived, the ambulance said, oh, this is, we've already seen seven overdoses this morning. So the manager contacted me. I wasn't in the clinic at the time. And I immediately rang the HSE and uh, the head of the HSE, Damon Keenan, and said, listen, I think there may be an insurgent overdoses. And I contacted the DRAG, Anna Liffey, Merchants Key, the drug services. So I basically contacted everyone as, as everyone I knew to say, be careful. This sounds like there may be something happening. And in the meantime, then there was a second overdose in our clinic. And we had to revive the second patient. And again, we had to give two naloxone. And... My manager was talking to, to people and he said he came back to say that um, that some clients he'd been talking to had told him that someone had been selling um, a batch of heroin and telling people not to inject it, that it was um, that it was more potent and there was a risk of overdose. So basically they, had, they hadn't been injecting it. So it's very clear on the day then, Austin, something out of the ordinary is happening. And you mentioned naloxone there. For our listeners, you might explain what naloxone is and how it assists you in the treatment here. So basically all medications, the opioids are medications that come come from opium poppy. So, you know, the original one that came from the opium poppy was morphine. Uh, Opium used to be smoked as a drug over in, particularly in China, originally the opium dens. 
And then they developed morphine from it, which is used as a painkiller. And then heroin was actually created by in a lab um, because it was seen as a, more, a better form of treatment for pain for people suffering from cancer or in wars with severe wounds. And then we've had a number of types of different type of opiates created, which are all similar to the original opium, but they all have different potencies. And what happens with opium is, is the opiate is that it actually, um, when, when someone injects an opiate uh, or takes an opiate, what it does, it binds to a receptor in our brain. And that basically triggers a particular response that makes us drowsy, we get pleasurable feelings. And it binds to that for different lengths of time. Um, it's, some opioids will bind tighter. What naloxone does is it comes in and it's not an opiate, but it, work, it can displace the opiate from these receptors. And when it displaces the opiate from these receptors, what that means is the person loses the effects. So the real life thing is that you, someone coming here, you see them collapsing, they're suddenly, they're not responding, they're becoming unconscious, you inject them. And within a minute or two, they're alert and awake. And actually, they're usually annoyed with you because you've just kicked them into withdrawals because they go straight into, because, you know, at this stage, they're dependent and they need to keep those receptors with opioids on them or else they'll go into what we call um, withdrawals. And when you stick naloxone in, you kick them into withdrawals. The interesting thing about naloxone is that what happens is it doesn't stay bound to the receptors for very long, around 20 minutes to half an hour. So what often happens is they, they recover and... Then what happens is you, you try and get them to take a hospital, but sometimes they'll just get into a strap and walk off. The risk is that a half an hour later, the naloxone goes off the receptors and there's still enough of what opioid, whether it's heroin or whatever it is, in the system and it rebinds the receptors and then they recollapse. And that's not um, that's unknown that they sometimes overdose, they die from overdose later on after giving the naloxone. And just how easily available is naloxone to your service then for wider use? Is it difficult to come by in these circumstances? Naloxone has, you know, has been much easier to uh, to obtain in the last number of years. There's been a big program by the HSE to distribute naloxone. So naloxone, we can give all our clients naloxone. They're trained that we train them up on how to administer it. It isn't that they wouldn't be administering it to themselves, obviously, because they're unconscious. But if they're around someone else who has it, they're able to administer it. They're also admin, um, give training and naloxone to relatives and all health staff are trained in it and all staff working in hostels, working in drug services. So the amount of naloxone available and the amount of people trained to administer it is hugely ramped up over the number of years. In some countries, it'll be even more available. In some countries, you'll be able to get naloxone um, from dispensing machines. Um, so, you know, not, but at the same time, I have to say, like, you know, for example, I think... It should be a good contrast. You know, in, in our case, we got the word out quickly and people use naloxone. But just to give you a contrast, I was talking to a colleague in Bristol and they said they believe that there was up to 11 deaths. It's a smaller city um, than Ireland and there was up to 11 deaths from this drug, uh, nitazine, in Bristol. Um, so I think it shows that the, the, in, in Ireland, the HSC has done a good job in getting naloxone available. So a clear spike, and now we've learned that this heroin was laced with nitazine. So can you tell us a little bit about nitazine and how it operates on the body? So nitazine is a, a what we call a, one of a group called nitrazines. Nitrazines are synthetic opioids. I think some of them are used actually in veterinary medicine as a, a sedative. A synthetic opioid is just, you know, the original opioid came from the opioid um, poppy, so synthetic opioid is where you don't have to use the original opium to create 
a chemical. So it's created in a lab somewhere. So some some medications we use are synthetic opioids. I think fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. It doesn't derive from the original opium. So it's um, basically they are drugs, um, and these particular drugs tend to be significantly stronger um, than heroin. And so that means that they bind much tighter to the receptor. They um, and they have much you know small amounts will be much more effective. So. They're much more effective in giving a high, but they're also much more effective in causing overdose. So, for example, fentanyl, which is a um, also synthetic opioid, normally to overdose you have to inject the medication. Heroin you can take in two ways: you can either put it on foil, and what to do is apply. Uh, they stick literally turn on a, match, a, a lighter underneath it that heats it up, and the fumes then come off the heroin, and they they inhale the fumes. It's called smoking. That you can almost can't. I've never seen an overdose from smoking heroin. Injection is where you mix it with citric acid and then you inject it into your, into your veins, and that's where you get overdose. However, with fentanyl, you can smoke fentanyl and overdose and smoking fentanyl. It's so powerful. And would you have come across nitazines before? We have all heard maybe about fentanyl and the misery that it's causing in the US, and then talk about a clampdown on poppy production in Afghanistan. So, are you seeing an increase in these types of opioids now? So basically, I know I was talking to Emma Keenan about this, and they were saying that this is the first time we've seen it in Ireland, but we did know it was in um, Northern Ireland and the UK. And I know when I rang Emma Keenan, that was the first thing he thought of. This is Nishazine, um, because he'd heard reports of it being in Northern Ireland. So we know that there's increasing reports of it being available. It was an outbreak in London, it was Bristol. It's not consistent, like it's more like what we call outbreaks, that suddenly it appears and um, there's an increase in overdoses. So it's you know I wouldn't say that it's 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 now part of the regular market, but we are seeing increasing amounts. Now, Austin, I know you mentioned that when these overdoses presented themselves in a short space of time, you linked in with other service providers and contacts you have in this area. But what impact did these overdoses have on services for people with substance abuse issues in Dublin? I think I mean what happens is when we rang around, we, it was interesting because. The problem is, one of the issues is that overdoses can be happening at different places, but no one centrally may know. When they rang around for the HSE, and I mean, I, I started hearing myself, I rang the hospitals, and then the hospital said, oh, we've actually got three or four people in here, and they had two cardiac arrests from overdoses. So both James's and the matter were seeing larger amounts of, of overdoses. I think then the ambulances started saying they were reporting, like there's two different ambulance services, so they were reporting. So when you brought it all together, there was a clear increase in the number of overdoses happening so everybody was working hard and uh, you know the 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 both the ambulance services were obviously it was it was a huge stress on them and the hospitals it was a huge stress and then what happened was their services responded by trying to get the word out to to users that you need to be really careful of what you buy and buy from a regular user ask and who you know will not sell you something that's laced it's so precarious, isn't it, out there for people who are addicted to drugs? They're obviously in very dire need of a, a drug. They're so addicted. It's impossible really to get feedback from them, is it? But it, did you get any kind of indication of what the impact was when they took these synthetic drugs? Was the high different? Uh, were they experiencing something very different to what they're used to? Um, I didn't actually um, get any experience like this. The experience we had were people who overdosed. Um, so I didn't anyone recount to me the actual experience, but I know people were much more wary on the streets. And I know, for example, there, there's, Anna Liffey has a, a texting service, the text at clients. So everybody was talking about it. Like in our waiting room, there was all the, the big topic of conversation was the overdoses and the new drugs. So 
they're they're aware of it. In a way, it's interesting because um, you know, I always remember I had a client come in to me who had five. You know, he came in with his key worker, and she said he's had five overdoses in the last three weeks. And I said to him, I said, "Are you trying to kill yourself?" And he said, "No." He says, "But I don't care whether I live or die." So he wasn't what we call suicidal, but he didn't care. I mean, you know, to me, what's the difference? It's a young person who's putting his life at risk, whether it's intentionally or just through lack of caring. So in a sense, a lot of these users are going out and they know they're taking a risk, you know. So, but I suppose the sad thing is that a lot of them don't, are willing to take that risk because whatever pain they're in, and you see, I see, the way we, a lot of people who are involved in addiction, the way we see addiction is that, you know, addiction is almost universally, um, for, to, to, the, to the drugs that cause death, like heroin and crack cocaine, addiction is, is almost poverty. Is, is the, you know, it's, it's by far the biggest cause of this and the biggest association. And what often happens when you delve into it, it's, 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 it's basically people coming from traumatic backgrounds where there's a huge amount of um, um, trauma in the family, there's rows, there's, they're under pressure, um, people are falling out, there may be addiction in the parents, and the kids then have to deal with all this huge trauma, and they cope by becoming um, very, you know, they challenging behaviours themselves. And then what happens is they grow up as adults who have huge anger and rage within them, and that's hard. You know, we all know what it's like when you're angry all the time. It wears you down. So they treat it with heroin. And so we see people as self-medicating to manage childhood trauma. So that's why we think they continue using because, you know, if it was me or me, like I always remember, do you know the guy who wrote Train Spotting? I'm after blanking on his name, Irving Welch. He's into an interview and he said he was addicted to heroin. And he said, he's, but he, in his thick Scottish accent, he was saying, you know, but he says, you know, you and me, we can get off heroin. He says, it's the others, the whatever trauma they had, they can't get off it. And I think that's what happens. And that's what I'm saying is I've seen these guys going out risking their lives. It often comes down, doesn't it, to the support networks they do or don't have around them. And do you think there's definitely, Austin, a shift happening in the conversation, at least in Ireland, around maybe shifting to a health-led approach here as opposed to a criminalisation of people who have addictions? Yeah, because I think uh, this is the New Citizens Assembly has recommended that we have a health-based approach also known as decriminalization, which I think is a, I prefer the health-led approach because that's actually a better recognition of what it does. And just to clarify what it means, if someone is found by the police with, with heroin in their possession for their own personal use, rather than going to the justice system, they're referred to a health service to try and address their addiction. If they're found a second time, they're referred again to the health service. If they don't go to the health service and engage, they'll then go back to the court system. Or if they're found in possession for sale, they'll go to the court system. So... It's not legalization. It's just about a health-led approach. And I think, you know, to me always, the, 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 the big societal discourse is that somehow drug users are to blame for being for using drugs. Whereas I've always believed it's poverty and childhood trauma is the cause of drug misuse. And we created that inequality and those circumstances. So, in fact, we are responsible. So I think, you know, if you believe they're responsible, then they should face the criminal system. If you believe we're responsible for creating that society, that inequality, then you have to be more compassionate and try and help them recover. And um, so that's why I think this recommendation by the Citizens' Assembly, and it was really good. I was involved in the process, and I, mean, I think we're, it's an amazing process, the Citizens' Assembly. I, as an Irish person, I'm very proud of that. Uh, because you go into 199 citizens who all have diverse opinions, but after hearing all the evidence, they come to a common position. So 
I think that process shows that that is probably an incredibly reasonable position. Yeah, and when you look at the United States and the iron grip now that fentanyl has on some communities across the United States, it's pretty terrifying. Have you come across it here yet? And could you give us a little look at what fentanyl is? I haven't seen it here, but I was over in the States earlier this year. and I was in Los Angeles and it was interesting, like Ireland, you know, just I was working over visiting homeless services. Just to give you the contrast, like Ireland, we're often very concerned about the amount of homeless people sleeping in the streets. We've around anywhere between 150 and 250. In LA, you have 50,000 people living on the streets. Like you've whole encampments. Like it's, it's, it's horrific. But fentanyl is the big drug over there. And I was talking to colleagues. I didn't actually witness any overdose myself, but I was talking to colleagues and they were saying is that they have so many more deaths. And that the other thing is it's so harder to revive people. You have to give a lot more naloxone, several, several vials of it. And uh, they said it's the predominant drug now. They're getting overdoses, as, as I said, of people who smoke in it rather than just purely people injecting it. So I think sometimes we, we and I, I think this can be because um, addiction is mainly, uh, this severe addiction affects people in poverty. There's over three, a death, over 350 people who die per year poor from uh, drug overdose. That's more than people who die from drug, road traffic accidents, which is roughly 2 to 250. People with drug addiction also die from HIV and hepatitis. If you combine those who die from overdose and HIV and hepatitis, it's over 600, which is higher than the amount of people who die from suicide every year, which is 500. Now, all those deaths are horrific and all those deaths are regrettable. But I don't think people would know that, that more people die from drug addiction due to, because I think partly because it's a disease of poverty and uh, it's a condition of poverty. And uh, uh, that, that that's why it doesn't get the airtime. And so the problem is like that's the level of death we're already facing from drug from drug use. Um, if fentanyl comes in, that is going to be far higher. And this is a, there. There are many who say that we're sleepwalking into the arrival of fentanyl. Is there anything we should be doing now to prepare for it? I think we're doing. I think to be fair, we've done a lot. I think the things we have to do is first of all we need to, to get the treatments out, naloxone, which we has been very successful in getting out. Second thing we need to do is get as many people onto opiate substitution treatment. People often misconceive opiate substitution treatment. They often say, well, you're just changing one addiction to another. Yeah, but if you're addicted to heroin, you can get overdose and die. You can get HIV, hepatitis, HIV. You fall out with your family. You become homeless. You lose your job. You end up in crime. Um, whereas if you're addicted to methadone or suboxone, None of those things happen. You don't overdose. You don't get HIV. You don't have to leave your family. You don't have to lose your kids. You don't have to lose your family. You don't have to end up unemployed or homeless. So I don't get caught up with addiction. I get caught up with the harms of addiction. And so if we can get more people onto opiate substitution treatment, um, that means they won't be uh, need to take heroin or fentanyl. So that'll save them. And if they want to come off the methadone, fully support them. But if they want to stay on it to stay safe, we'll support them too. And the third thing we need to do is stop people falling into addiction. And I think that's about providing support to communities and families who are, who are um, experiencing trauma and uh, how we help them support services. And then also, let's address inequality that actually creates that, those situations in the first place. That's the long term. You know, a lot of the things we are talking about in the lock zone, getting people off methadone, we're fishing people off downstream, pulling them out of the stream downstream. We need to start also taking the effect. So, that's the full letter. So the other thing we need to do, I promise you, actually, I want to promote this idea is actually develop an early warning system. So, for example, at that time I saw someone um, 
you know, I got a report from my manager, I rang someone. But if I hadn't got a report from my manager, there isn't a central monitoring system. But I think this could be set up, and I've just sent out emails to suggest this, that we should set up a early warning system. Do You mentioned some of the gaps in the services with people addicted to opioids. Have we dropped the ball a little bit on the substitutes like methadone? And no, I don't think we have. I think what the, the problem is, I, th- I do think it's, it's it's very it's much more available now than more easier to get onto treatment than when I first started. And it's now three days, like it used to be up to three four months. It's now now you can almost. So I do think things have improved. Down the country, there's big gaps, um, and I do ask my colleagues. I mean, um, GPs can provide treatment for methadone, but a lot of them don't. And there's whole what you call a treatment desert stand down, particularly in the country. And I've had people come up to me and become homeless specifically to get onto heroin. And one very sad case where a young, I said this before, a 24-year-old woman with a child, a young child came up. She came up to Dublin, became homeless to get onto methadone. We got her onto methadone and we said, you should get back to your town. We sent her down to her town and got her a pharmacy in the town. But we couldn't get a GP to take her on because no GP would, would, would manage people with addiction. Um, she so she had to come up every two weeks to us and we didn't realise she'd come up the night before and stay in a hostel and one night in the hostel she was badly sexually assaulted and she ended up in the streets and overdosed three days later and died uh, or a week later but you know so now she, her, her child has no mother and she's dead I think if a GP had taken her on in her hometown that wouldn't have happened and I think that's not the only case so I do would appeal to my fellow GP colleagues down the country there's a lot of GPs who do do it but it's not mandatory as a GP um, I find it unusual when more people die from drug addiction, young people die than almost any other condition. I personally think that's wrong. And I think they're, they're scared of it and they need to be. It's one of the most rewarding works I know. I've, I love working with them. They're great clients. This is it. When you hear about figures and statistics and numbers and overdoses, all of this happening last week, you forget really that there's a human story behind every one of those. And look, thank you so much, Austin, for giving us those insights on all of this today. Pleasure. This episode of The Explainer was supported by Daft.ie. With the largest number of properties for sale in Ireland and being the number one preferred site among buyers and sellers, daft.ie is the best place to buy or sell your home. If you've been affected by any of the discussion today, please note that you can call the Samaritans on 116123. That's 116123. Thanks again to Dr. Austin O'Carroll for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.